Hey, everybody. How we doing? Some of you better than others, I think, it's based on your, 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 your grunts. Uh, well, today is our third message in our series on preparation for Advent. Um, and if you're joining us, you weren't here for the last couple of weeks, uh, the logic of having a pre-Advent series goes like this. Uh, Advent is this season of intentional preparation for uh, the miracle, the mystery of the Incarnation, this, this uh, feast where we celebrate how God has come to be with us in the kingdom, present to us. Uh, so it's this time of looking back at the time when Jesus came in his birth, when God drew near, and this time of looking forward to the time when the kingdom comes again in fullness. But so often we get to the end of December, or the end of November, the start of December, and we're already like caught up in the gears of like the holiday industrial complex, right? Um, case in point, in October, I got my first holiday gift guide, um, you know, and it was from Target. It had all the toys, and let's be real. Who doesn't love a good toy gift guide? If you are under a certain age, you simply do not know the joy of being in your room with the JCPenney or the Best Catalog. Did you guys have Best out here, Best Stores? No? Oh, they were the best. Like, seriously, like, so good. Their toy catalogs were awesome. They, they had them, like, so carefully photographed so that you could imagine yourself. And, right, so I would, I would stay in there, and I would circle these images of all the toys that I wanted uh, that were posed perfectly for you to imagine, you know, all the possibilities. Oh, such a delight to my greedy little heart. Um, but then Christmas Day would come, and inevitably I'd play with my Cobra Rattler or whatever it was that I had been longing for for so long, and I would experience after about an hour that 10-year-old existential crisis of, dang, the wanting was better than the having. What do I do now? And then Christmas Day, the rest of it was kind of like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? But it'll be great for you guys. It'll be awesome. <laughs> but at the heart, you know, of this, is, so we're taking these four weeks before Christ the King and Advent, asking the question, is there, is there a better way for us to prepare? And to ask what would happen if we were to think about Christmas differently, if we were committed to using some of our resources away from overconsumption and toward those in need. At the heart of the incarnation is the reality that in Jesus, God drew near. More specifically, God drew near, among, not among the powerful and the elite, but among the poor and vulnerable. In scene after gospel scene, we see Jesus drawing close to those on the margins and the poor. And so if we are going to practice the way of Jesus, we too must be in proximity with our neighbor's in greatest need. Uh, so with that, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them to Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. It's a short scene from a day in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, and please pray with me as we read. Almighty God, we ask that you would still our restless hearts and draw our ears toward you so that hearing by the power of your Spirit, you would be near to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who is the Word made flesh. Amen. 
Mark 1, 40 through 45. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man, I am willing, he said, Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet, the people still came to him from everywhere. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, every year, the athletic program of my high school would run a Christmas tree stand fundraiser uh, to benefit the athletic program, kind of to you know, provide uniforms and scholarships and all that stuff. And to kick it off, in order to build in some sort of, uh, you know, get some buy-in from the community, build community, get some cheap labor, really, uh, some of the student athletes did an overnight camp to kind of set up. Looking back on it this week, super bizarre idea. Get a bunch of high school jocks out in a vacant lot on the edge of town near the oil fields. Give them minimal adult supervision. Ply them with pizza and sugar and coffee and, like, expect them to go to work and let them build a fire and sleep under the stars. What could go wrong with that? My mom was like, yeah, you're not going to that thing. So, but my best friend Charles, he did go. Uh, his parents had an RV, and they were loosely in charge of the thing. Uh, and then one year, our, our sophomore year, when he got there, there was an unsheltered man who was kind of hanging out on the edge of the lot. Uh, this man hadn't approached them. He hadn't asked for anything. He was just, you know, that was just a space he had settled on to kind of ride out the autumn nights. And the guy who owned the lot, uh, who was letting the school use it, had gotten there just a little while earlier and told the man, you know, he needed to move on. We got a thing going on here tonight. Uh, and so as this man was gathering his things together, my friend Charles came up to him and said, hey, we got all this food. You know, as you go on your way, do you need anything? And they said, yes. They made some small talk. And then after a while, the man said, well, all right, well, I got I to gotta, I gotta go. Uh, and this, but this didn't quite sit well with my friend because it, it was getting cold outside. But then, you know, before too long, uh, you know, friends started to show up and shenanigans, you know how it is, all that stuff. Charles sort of got his mind taken off of it. There was a night of, you know, setting up Christmas trees and burning stuff up ahead. So the next morning, uh, he was the first one to get up. His parents had an RV, so he slept in the RV, so he actually got some sleep. And he walked outside and he started to, you know, clean up from the revelries. And something caught his eye out in the distance near one of the pump jacks. And as he got closer, he realized it was the lifeless body of the man that he had talked to just the night before. And when the paramedics arrived, they determined that in his attempt to find warmth during the night, he got too close to one of the rigs and slowly asphyxiated from the carbon monoxide output. And that just shook my friend, right? The death, of course. But also the bigger questions that kind of stuck around and haunted him for years. See, here he was with a bunch of kids from this private high school who had homes and who had pantries and kitchen tables and fridges full of food. And they were going to this fun event to, you know, work and goof off and sit around a bonfire and be in community with one another. 
And it was all done in the name of a community that was supposed to be all about the life, death, and resurrection of a king who chose to be poor among those who were poor and to live among the marginalized. And here was this man who, for one reason or another, he didn't didn't have any of those things. And he was just looking for a place to rest, only to be told by somebody from that community of this risen king who chose to be with the poor, you can't do it here, not tonight, you got to move on. And I get it, it's complicated, there's liability, there's security issues, there's probably enough risk for the guy who owned the lot to let a bunch of, you know, high school students stay on it for free and all that stuff. But do you feel the disconnect? Do you, do you feel the tension? See, close to the heart of the gospel is this declaration that in Jesus, God is with us. And the fascinating thing about God is that in choosing the people of Israel, he, and in choosing a, a poor couple from Nazareth, God chooses his proximity by being with the poor. The theologian Howard Thurman describes it like this. The economic predicament with which he was identified in birth placed him initially with the great mass of men on the earth. The masses of the people are poor. If we dare take the position that in Jesus there was at work some radical destiny, it would be safe to say that in his poverty, he was more truly the son of man than he would have been if the incident of family or birth had made him a rich son of Israel. In other words, the very first time Jesus voiced solidarity with the poor wasn't in a sermon or in a parable, but in the cry of a newborn in a Bethlehem stable. And this, of course, runs far afield from our notions of strategic planning or effective change management, right? I mean, we we tend to think of ways to influence the culture or to move the needle with this or that. And you begin with the powerful, you begin with the well-connected, you begin with the elite. But when God wants to make the most lasting change that the world has ever seen, he passed over all the more obvious candidates. He passed over Egypt and then Babylon and then at the time of Jesus, Rome. And instead, settled with a people who were crying out under the yoke of oppression, out on the margins of ancient Near Eastern culture. And to that group out on the edge of the map, God declares, chosen, mine. And it was through these powerless people that then God chose to make his appeal to all of the world. And as the story unfolds, God is remarkably stubborn about this very subversive strategy of his. The oppressed, the enslaved, the the least likely, the overlooked, these are his primary messengers. And the story of the Bible is of a God who hears the cry of the poor and then draws near. Which is why it's not surprising that in Luke's gospel, the very first thing that Jesus does after his temptation in the wilderness is he goes into the synagogue finds a place in the scroll and says, this is my mission statement. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says, this day, it's happening in me. And that gets him in all kinds of trouble, as you can imagine but these old words of Isaiah that reveal this, the heart of God and his character as one who is both righteous 
and just. God is righteous. He has revealed himself to be faithful in his promises and holy in his presence. But God is just. He is concerned about the imbalances of this world and draws near to the cries of those who experience them most acutely. God is broken over the rumbling belly, and he draws near over the parched throat of the thirsty, over the shivering body of the naked. God is both inwardly righteous and outwardly just. And often that's how we read it in our Bibles, righteousness as one word, justice as another. But there's this, this curious thing that gets lost in translation and gets lost in our culture, and that's that the biblical Hebrew word for interpersonal righteousness is sedekah. And the biblical Hebrew word for outer-oriented justice is sedekah. I've said this before, but it's, it's worth repeating. And what it tells us, and what it tells those who are shaped by the story of Scripture, is that to be righteous is to care for the poor. To care for the poor is to be righteous. And so in Mark's gospel, this very first day of Jesus' ministry, after he reads the scroll in the synagogue, all the things that Jesus says he's about, the good news for the poor, freedom for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, uh, freedom for those who are oppressed, it, it just starts to happen. He takes up residence among the poor, the blind, the disabled, those tormented by demons, the forgotten, and he just gets about the work of bringing them freedom. Mark paints the scene like this. In the verses just before, Jesus begins his day by pulling away in the mountains for a time of prayer. This, this, this daily rhythm of his, of drawing near to the heart of the one he called Father, where he could calibrate, where he could be in intimacy and communion. It was his regular practice of inward devotion. And while he's at this, his disciples come and find him and say, hey, everybody's looking for you. You were such a hit yesterday. People, people want more. And so he begins to go to a nearby village. And not too long after that, a man with leprosy comes up to him. And it's not immediately obvious in the pages of the Bible, but leprosy was one of the most feared diseases in the world. It would lead to nerves deadening, paralysis, horrible skin lesions. It was highly contagious. But the worst thing about it was the stigma and the isolation that came from it. And since there was no cure, social distancing was the only protocol. Lepers lived in colonies outside of the city, away from family and friends, away from access to the synagogue and the temple, which meant away from access to God. It was like you were already dead, and you're just waiting for your body to catch up. And what began as this means of protecting others from this incurable disease transitioned then to first a posture of benign neglect. But then it became this passive means of judgment as if to say, well, you probably brought this on yourself and this is just God's way of working it out. And so this man comes up to Jesus, desperate as you can imagine, if you are willing you can make me clean. It's a declaration of faith. And Jesus is just kind of torn up by this. Some translations like the NAV say that he became indignant 
as if to give the impression that Jesus is kind of mad at the guy for pulling him out of like the spiritual high that he's riding. But the word that Mark actually uses is a word called, uh, named, not named, it's a word splanks nizomai, which is just fun to say. Even the sound of it, it's this visceral kind of sound. It's this idea of, of something coming out of being moved in the inmost parts of your body. It's a way of saying that Jesus is absolutely gutted by this. And it's not the request that bothers him. It's not even the subtle hint that Jesus might be unwilling, right? Or the questioning of his motives. If anything, Jesus is moved by the suffering that's ravaging this man's body, by a social system that has chosen to deal with him by moving him out of sight, by, by, by casting the poor and the vulnerable to the outskirts, saying, you can't be here. That's what makes Jesus indignant. The oppressed he has come to set free are not only those held down by the weight of their own sin, but also by the sinful powers that have cast them aside as inconvenient. If God is near to the brokenhearted, Jesus is wondering that how is it that God's people have become so unmoved that they would put the suffering out of sight? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. These are the things that break God's heart. And so in a culture that would give him every permission to move away from the poor and vulnerable, to tell this man, you gotta, you got to leave, you got to get out of here. Jesus does the counter-instinctual action of actually drawing near and reaching out. And the punch of the story is that it does not end the way that everyone thinks it should, with Jesus, the clean one, becoming unclean. No, it ends with restoration, the one who was unclean is made clean. The one who was on the outside is brought in, and the one who is the kingdom come in person actually finds himself then on the outside. Mark concludes with the terse, as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, which is a little bit of a fast forward to the end of the story when Jesus is out in the outskirts of the city on a hill in a lonely place called Golgotha. This is exactly how Jesus saves all of us. See, for Jesus loves to just pour itself out in this moment of inspired teaching. But about a God who brings freedom to the captives, this is how Jesus went about his day-to-day -day life. So as we prepare our hearts for this season, in which we celebrate God's coming among us, this is the thing I want us to see. That in Jesus, there was no gap between the internal movement of his heart, righteousness, and the outward movement of his hands and feet, justice. And for his followers, he, he, he is involved in this miracle of drawing them near. It's the same thing. Spiritual formation, mission, justice, they're all part of the same tree. Righteousness is the root of that tree. And justice is the fruit. And the way that we practice Jesus, the way of Jesus, is through these internal movements of, of prayer and scripture and, and Sabbath and simplicity so that the life of Jesus may pour out of us into the streets of our city. That is what happens when God draws near. And when God's people draw close enough 
when they slow down enough to be drawn close to God's heart, to be moved with compassion for the hurting needs of the world, to see their homes and their neighborhoods and their communities as the staging ground for God's mission to the world, then we begin to see with renewed eyes. We get to watch Jesus at work. Spiritual writer Robert Mulholland puts it like this. The place where we live out our relationship of loving union with God is not the quiet of our prayer closet, but in our relationships with one another. Here is where we put to death the manipulative, coercive, controlling dynamics of the false self. Here is where we abandon the dehumanizing and abusive practices of the false self. We love others. The quality of our inward righteousness is the quality of the justice in our city. And so what if Christmas was a chance not to move further away but draw closer in? What if it was our chance to notice those who normally get ignored? And there are a couple of practices that help index our hearts towards God's righteousness and justice as we prepare him room in anticipation of Christmas. And the first is generosity. And i got to say, you, as a congregation, you do this so well. Every year we have a giving campaign called One Day for Change in which we ask you to set aside one day's wages to Uh, donate that over and above your normal offering to give directly to our mission partners. And over the years, you have given hundreds of thousands to those in this city who are engaged in the work of justice and mercy. But but I always want to make clear, we don't do that just because there is need out there. We do it because there is need right here. New Testament scholars point out that 25% of Jesus' teaching is on the subject of money. Can you imagine what it would be like if one out of every four sermons up here was about money? Uh, This room would be, one of two things would happen. Either this room would be a lot smaller than it is, or I'd be driving a Mercedes. (laughs) But, But the reason, like, in Jesus' moral vision, he looks out on this world and he sees It through the lens of God's amazing generosity. Look at the birds of the air. He says, look at the flowers of the field. He sees a world where there is more than enough. And this is because Jesus is God's generosity. For God so loved the world that he gave. And so for Jesus, it was about seeing the needs of others, but it was also about the inner architecture of the heart's We give as a practice to remember that with God, there is always enough. When I was doing some research for the Simplicity series uh, a month ago, I I read an article from the Journal of Consumer Psychology. Don't judge me for what I read. I do this so you don't have to. But it had a catchy title, and it was this. If money doesn't buy you happiness... You're not spending it right. And I was like, ooh, <laughs> let's see. Here's the Super Cliffs Notes summary spend on relationships, not on things. We talked about that last week. And second, spend on those in need instead of yourself. That's the relationship money and happiness. It ain't about you. <laughs> Generosity, or what researchers call pro-social spending, actually changes who we are. 
Uh, in some of his research, David Brooks sums it up with this. When people make generosity part of their daily routine, they refashion who they are. The people who radiate a permanent joy have given themselves over to lives of deep and loving commitment. And I don't even have to tell you. Like, you can just picture them in your mind, those, those, those people whose lives are just incandescent with the generosity of God because they have woven it so deeply into their lives that they radiate freedom and contentment. You know who those people are. Some of you are those people. That's, that's also the why of the giving. It's to index our hearts toward the kingdom so that we become the kind of people who just naturally find our home there. We give not to assuage our guilt, not to set even a good moral example. We give because it's who God is. It's how we become free. So generosity is one practice. Second, serve others. When Jesus announced that the point of the incarnation was to proclaim good news to the poor, the gospels give us every indication that he meant it. And he gave his disciples the invitation to join him. When Dorothy Day was asked how to practice the gospel in New York City in the 1930s, she simply said, stay close to the poor. More recently, Rich Viotis put it like this, practicing justice becomes a possibility when we are present to God and in close proximity to the vulnerable among us. To practice justice requires us to practice presence. Drawing near to the poor and the vulnerable is not an optional part of discipleship or is it reserved for those who have a particular social philosophy. It is an imperative of the gospel that pours out of Jesus at every turn. He was both the righteousness of God and the justice of God. And so Nura mentioned earlier today three ways that you can be involved. You can partner with Ethne today. Um, you can partner by joining a mission trip uh, with our partner in Guatemala, Manas de Jesus. You can uh, join by giving and by being present with, um, with focused uh, community strategies and pride for parents. And you can join us in prayer. Unless you think one of those things is not like the other, right? That prayer, well, that's the easy button. Uh, just be aware that there is this pattern that emerges all throughout Scripture, that righteousness begins in the heart, grows within the local church, and then spills into the streets in works of justice and mercy. And remember, too, that before Jesus healed this man with leprosy, he spent the morning in prayer. Prayer is the place that we breathe in so that we have something to breathe out so if any of this feels like just another thing to do in an already over-busy season, then guess what? Just start with prayer. That something might well up within you for the sake of others. And, and of course, there are many other ways, doubtless uh, some things that are close and near and dear to your hearts, of ways that you can draw near to those who are in need. But the invitation is for us to consider all the changes that you've made by simplifying your life, how can those be translated into becoming a community of contribution who give relationally and who resist the empire of more by adding one more thing that demands that we make Christmas bigger and better than it was last year through the act of consumption? 
What if bigger and better wasn't measured by the stacks of presents under the tree, but by the quality of the stories and the grace that we share with one another? What if those got richer and deeper every year? And the stories of how the kingdom life came from out there and poured into here instead of just coming here and staying here. Wouldn't that be something? Close to the heart of the gospel is the declaration that in Jesus, God is with us, that God became proximate, that God drew near to each one of us in our poverty. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. God gave up the glory of heaven to be near to us. It's the story we tell every Christmas. It's the best story there is to tell. It's an even better story to live.